I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. Have you ever found yourself stuck in the quicksand of life's challenges where every effort to move seems to pull you deeper into struggle? Or perhaps found yourself caught in a cycle of overachievement and overdoing, only to realize it's a shield against unprocessed trauma? This dance of resilience, this balancing act between breaking and rebuilding, just may be where we find our truest strength. And today, we dive deep into this transformative journey. Joining me on this exploration is Dr. Nida Bhushan, a former cosmetic dentist turned emotional resilience expert and advocate for human connection. Author of the critically acclaimed book, That Sucked, Now What? And founder of the Global Grit Institute and the Dharma Coaching Institute. Nida's work in reframing resilience has earned international recognition, being featured in Forbes, LA Weekly, ABC, and more, inspiring countless individuals to turn their struggles into opportunities for growth. Prepare to be inspired, challenged, and transformed as we unravel the art of turning life's most sucky moments into stepping stones for growth and self-realization. Here we go. Dr. Neetha, welcome to the Gently Used Human Podcast. That was my intro of intros. <laughs> I love that. It sounds like you were like a Tony Award winning Broadway performer. I feel like you know how to see me. I feel seen. You feel seen? I feel, I feel seen. Okay. In my the fantasy of what should have happened in my youth, but didn't. But... <laughs> You know, that sucked. And, you know, now what? Now what? Now what? Speaking of (laughs) your book title, (laughs) that sucked. Now what? (laughs) We have so much fun with just that title and your podcast title alone. I know. I just am going to say that sucked. I was fantasizing about all these ways I was going to create chaos in the beginning of the episode to then say, well, that sucked. Now what? But then there was chaos. Like you came on and there was some chaos with your nanny and we were like figuring it out. And we're like, well, that sucked. It was a little rough of like an entry. And then we're like, wait, now what? What does happen next? Now what? Now what? We're all going to be okay. The car is going to be okay. Yeah. The side of the road's going to be okay. <laughs> It's all going to be okay. Is she going to be okay? <laughs> I hope she's going to be okay. Might be a minor, minor T-trauma. Minor. Minor T-trauma. Yeah. Or maybe big. I mean, maybe. you know. I mean, it can be, be scary to, to have a flat tire on the side of a road. Side of highway. the highway, I guess. Highway. Yeah. 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 And, you know, first time for things is often like harder. We don't have a reference point to be like, oh, I've survived this before. That is true. That is true. Yeah. And so. I was like, as we were figuring this out, I was also thinking about, okay, the first time I had a flat tire, I was kind of scared, actually. I was born and raised in Chicago. So, you know, it's uh, the shy. So, so shy yeah, I, I, I guess I was, I was actually kind of scared. How old were you? I was, oh gosh, I was like 19. Were you alone or were you with other people? No, I was alone. I remember it was after kind of like when my dad passed away. 
And I remember I would call my Uncle Glenn for everything. And it's my uncle and my aunt were kind of like our, our, our papa bear, mama bear, papa bear. And I like to call them our pseudo bonus parents. But he had triple A. <laughs> he, he had triple A. Triple A. The Gently Used Human brought to you by Triple A. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a plug for Triple A. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And, and to this day, we have Triple A. <laughs> it's now sounding like a plug. Wait, so go back. You called them. They had AAA. And what happened next? Yeah, I called I called my uncle and he's like, this is why we have AAA. And so I'm like, oh, I don't even know what that is. I'm like, can somebody come and get me? And this is obviously before Ubers. This is before all of the things. But and I don't it was not on the side of the highway, but it was definitely because, you know, you hear all of the stories that don't talk to strangers and don't let anybody help you. (laughs) And like and then now you're on the side of the road. And I felt like everyone was looking at me, but people are going so fast. And so I was literally like, okay, I'm just going to stay in the car or you could call 911, but I called AAA. And so I think it was like, I don't know, the first 30 minutes, but it felt like forever because you're alone and you're like, oh my gosh, is somebody going to... So I can see how that can be frightening, even though we were, you know talking about it making light of it earlier (laughs) (laughs) we were we were playful about it but yeah it i feel like you know your first flat tire is kind of a universal experience if you have a car or if you've Mm -hmm. had a car and it is like i i remember mine and being like oh i should have paid attention to my parents when they told me what to do Right. And there was no YouTube back then. Like now it's like, oh, we can YouTube how to change a flat tire. Back then it was like the scariest thing to just be on the side of the road. And God forbid you're having it at night because Mm -hmm. that's like Mm -hmm. a whole different experience. Then you really don't want to get out of your car if you're like a, you know, female or whatever. I remember vividly my dad actually even showing me in high school you know, you pump the thing up and then the, the car goes up and yeah, but I, who, who pays attention? Thank God for YouTube. <laughs> God for YouTube. It's also, I think, you know, talking about even the theme of your book, it's like we can be told something, but it's not till we experience it so often that we then are actually encountering the feelings, the fears, the struggles, the challenges of it. As much preparation as people might give us, it's not the same as the encounter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And honestly, to say even more about that, because it was such a pivotal time for me, I was an orphan. I had just become that. And it was a lot of feelings. It was like, why me getting fully into the victim mode of like, this happened and I can't believe this happened. And now, and, and you're just pent up with all of these feelings that you can't numb. You can't go to another course or another, you know, biochemistry class to like suppress all of the emotions. <laughs> you're like, literally it felt like an eternity, but I'm thinking, I'm like, oh yeah, no, it was a lot of feelings I was confronted with. So this is really interesting. This is like full therapy right now. It's full therapy. I mean, we call it. We're we're going back. We're going back. We're going back. How are you feeling about it? 
Yeah, I'm feeling my chest kind of constricting at this moment as I'm like, I'm like, hmm, I wonder, did Dr. Scott actually plan that? (laughs) I'm like, he's really good. (laughs) He's really, really good. Yeah, no. And my gut is like, okay, let's breathe and let's feel it. Mm. Yeah. I really hear like how this incident like takes us back in stepping stones of our own memories and all the things that are actually glued onto that memory, like, or that event. Yes. Yes. And I feel like, I think a lot of times we feel we can unlayer or like just shed the layers, but I think then you're reminded of an instance again, and it takes you back about 20 years and you're kind of like, oh, okay. And it's easy to make light of it because it makes Mm -hmm. us feel good. But then the ickiness or the stickiness of, and that's kind of what the book is about, right? To be able to sit in the discomfort. You taking me back there, I was like, oof, okay, we're going to sit in that suck because <laughs> that was a really big suck. And to be 19 and like going through the slew of all of those things, it was so easy for me to bury because I still had to take care of my youngest brother who was 14 at the time, brand new going to high school with all of the things, no parents, et cetera. We lost our parents and my brother. And it was like in a span of, you know, these four years through my adolescence. So it was a lot of trauma. And to think about it, actually, this first time, or if I were to say even an initiation, to kind of sit in that full discomfort, even though it was maybe 30 minutes, 45 minutes, who knows, it could have been an hour, but it was like eternity. Because you obviously you're scared because you don't know what's going to happen on the side of the road. But there's this also internal fear of like, I am alone now Mm. with all these big feelings and I can't study. I can't suppress them. I can't talk to another person right now (laughs) because I want to conserve battery on my phone. So I'm just going to sit and this doesn't feel good. This does not feel good at all. But the only way out, right, is through. We'll let you even sit through that 30, 45 minutes without evaporating. Yeah. Well, to be honest, like prayer was such a big part of my life. And I even remember maybe even a year before my dad, like he was diagnosed with stage four cancer. So it went, it came pretty fast, but I want to say maybe a year or even six months before he had passed vividly sitting in the ICU room. And I had all friends that just came and some of them like, like play, play the guitar, played, just played music. I come from a Filipino Indian background and boy, do we know how to entertain And so uh, I was always a party inside of the ICU because the nurses were Filipino. Shout out to the Filipino nurses. But they knew how to, you know, everyone loved karaoke. And so my dad was like, to my friends, whatever is faith, please take my daughter along. I literally remember him saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And so whether it was temple, church, mosque, you name it, I lived in the city of Chicago, just such a melting pot, synagogue, whatever. Like it was like, take her, take her to faith. 
So I think that was probably one of the, yeah, the biggest, I think, strongholds because I was so exposed to all of the different faiths growing up in a lot of the external aunts and uncles. We would go to Gurdwara, which is a Sikh temple. We would go to Hindu temple. We would go to Catholic church. My mom was like full on Catholic. So it was like a lot of that, like dogma per se. And I think, you know, there was a time where I was, yeah, I was upset. I was mad at God, faith, religion, because I'm like, what does it all mean, honestly? And that's all I had. And so I think that when you're in the depths of darkness or when you're in that suck, we start to learn these coping mechanisms. And, you know, I think for me, my biggest coping mechanism was I could definitely entertain that made me feel good. (laughs) (laughs) That made me feel good. And also I I love to gather humans. And that was something I learned very, very early on. I mean, I remember just at 10 years old when my mom was diagnosed with her breast cancer, I had cousins and family members and relatives and just, we would all, it would be a full house of love and light because things were just super dark. But I was also told to get straight A's and to, you know, the rat race of life and the ballet and the dance and the, you still get the trophies, you're still competing, piano. So it was, I learned that a lot of these emotions that I would have, just keep pushing through, just keep moving forward because you're resilient. Mm, I love that you're giving the air quotes that that's (laughs) resilient because we know that's bullshit. We know it's bullshit. We know that's bullshit. Yeah. And I guess what more could they have said during that time, especially when you're going through and they're first generation, you know, I was first generation, they're immigrants. And so it's like, I guess that's what you say, right? I feel like now being so privileged to actually live through something like that, that was so deep, so painful, just... But I wasn't allowed to sit in the sock, maybe because the sock was just too fucking painful. And maybe, and I think because in writing this book, I know now, after having shared many of this or, you know, had thousands of students come across the platform in in whatever way, it's hard. Who wants to sit in the sock? Well, sometimes we are so scared that we'll get stuck there forever. So it's easier to just, let's bypass it. Let's change the channel. Let's swipe because that feels much better for our nervous system. Yeah. It's that auto-regulation. It's that ability to tune out, which is, I mean, evolutionarily, we have the capacity for it because too much is too much. But at the same time, if we don't find our way back, that suck still sits and festers. It sits and then it sits and it sits. And I was so glad to come on your podcast because, you know, to really unpack all three of my family members, my mom, my brother, and my dad, they did pass on because of, I feel like these emotional manifestations of what couldn't be processed or what wasn't processed. I mean, my mom, her breast cancer kind of spread into her lungs, grief. My brother had a severe asthma attack a year after my mom died. My mom passed when I was 16. So literally and exactly a year later, my my brother collapsed in front of his school 
And he was the closest person to my mom. And so grief, right? Lungs, his lungs gave out. They couldn't revive him even in the ambulance. And then two years after that, my dad is diagnosed with stage four inoperable lung cancer. Grief. And how interesting (laughs) is that now? I talk about grief. Now you talk about grief. Yeah, and this grief journey. Yeah. I mean, how could you not talk about grief? Gosh, yeah. When that colors in so much of our early life experience, it's like we know what we've experienced. Yes, and I also think that with every passing and and during the series Mm -hmm. of that time, it was survival mode, you know? It was survival mode, and I'm like, okay, we started off as – you know, on the side of the road (laughs) with a flat tire. But going back to that example, it got me back into survival mode of like, okay, nervous system is like dysregulated, but that feels really comfortable because I've been in this, something like this chaos pretty much my entire young adult life. That's all I know, but I'm also scared. And now this time... I don't have my dad to like come and do things for me. Now it's like I have to cross that threshold and it's fucking scary. I don't know what I'm doing. I am going to find, call my uncle. <laughs> Maybe he can support. <laughs> and he's like, call, call AAA. But I feel like it was such a, it was, it was such a, an initiation to be in the, bigness of those emotions that for me were honestly so easy to suppress because I had another test to study for because I was working three jobs because I was still in survival mode. And I think, you know, for anybody that's listening to, we're using the metaphor of, you know, a flat tire, but where are we given these opportunities of being able to sit in the heaviness and the bigness where that tow truck is not going to come, where it's just you and you're facing your own demons and your own suck, but to allow and to surrender and not resist, right? Because when we resist, it will continue to rise up to the surface. Yeah. And I think for us to even pause and go, what has been that opportunity An opportunity is such a painful word in that way, but it's like what have been the circumstances and maybe the opportunity to say, to confront the things that have been unconfrontable. Like we can't not be in this moment with what's here and experience even the smallest amount of it and be confronted by it to face it. And hopefully, hopefully in those moments, we built up the resources in our life, the support systems, the resources that, that lets us tolerate that contact because we can't process and metabolize what we don't feel. And or it gets stuck yeah, in our tissues, in our cells, and it starts to manifest in, in different ways. Or we start to attract people that will trigger it more into our being and our surface and for more of that processing, for us to fully unpack and to finally let it go and to transmute it or to alchemize it. I mean, it's why we get to sit today. 
I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to The Embody Lab, which is one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing, and The Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery, or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, the Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring, and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab, and so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. Going back for a moment, did you experience in your life where you were attracting people who triggered up some of the things you couldn't process? Oh wow, yes. I mean, I think for you know, I when I when I share, there were unhealthy coping mechanisms. You know, the one thing I share, obviously, it goes without saying, is the the overworking, the overachieving the doing, the, you know, let's do another medal. Let's, let's do another accolade. Let's run a marathon. Let's become a cosmetic dentist, get your own practice, you know, before you're 30. So like all of those things were really set. And that was easy because I can pour every single ounce of, you know, just energy and everything that maybe I was running away from into that. Yet, what was really, you know, and what took a, a big backseat was my personal life was the relationships that I attracted, not just friendships. I'm talking about romantic partners. And I would literally get into these codependent, very almost narcissistic, codependent partnership behaviors, styles where I wanted to be saved. I I wanted to recreate a family that I was, I lost. And maybe, maybe inherently at the very, very like subconscious level, I didn't think I was worthy of that. So I would attract partners who would remind me of remembering my worth. Mm. Probably not in the best light because these were toxic, abusive patterns And these would overlap one after the other to the point where this was, you know, another big initiation for me 10 years later, you know, after going through all of the schooling and having set up and, you know, you have what we call this external idea or ideal of, oh, success, like, oh my gosh, Nita made it. And I was such a, the talk of the town for all of our family and friends and extended family and friends. And, you know, she, top of her class and all of these things to brag about in the community, because it's a big deal. But, you know, I fell in love and I thought that having a, you know, big fancy wedding and getting married and all of the things would secure me in a way, but that would be the biggest, I would say, remembrance back to myself because my life would be threatened. 
And this would literally happen December 31st, 2011, where, you know, enough was enough. And I was no longer going to sit and live in this lie, this lie that, you know, in in Filipino Indian traditions, you don't talk about divorce. That's a very taboo topic. You don't even talk about what's going on beneath closed doors, let alone physical, mental, emotional abuse. And I believe that was my initiation to finally allow people to come in because for me, it was like, nope, I've got this super strong. I'm resilient. Actually, everything is okay. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. Fine. Until it wasn't until I had to haphazardly leave in the middle of the night. And I finally told my brother, my only brother, my only living relative, you know, in our immediate family. And it's interesting when you let people in, it's like they already knew, like we knew, we all knew. You're probably the only person that didn't say I see it. And that was a reclamation back to myself of not only shattering all of these beliefs and ideals and and thoughts of not asking for help, not allowing yourself to break and and just fully break down and and that was to that then be okay to fall apart and shatter into a thousand pieces and maybe that is actually what resilience looks like that we don't have to be so strong that we could actually break down and come together you know and the Japanese have a term for it right kintsugi you know with the gold threads through the cracks and that is beautiful and of course, it was shedding a lot of my own personal beliefs around just the perfectionism of having to be this person to represent the legacy of my family and also all of that taboos and the generational karma and the traumas that I literally had to break through from both sides to say, all right, I'm going to be this black sheep, brown sheep, rainbow sheep and speak about <laughs> what so many of my family members have put under the rug around allowing ourselves to fully be seen. And so that began my journey of seven years to own, okay, I, I, I would sacrifice my own worth because I just wanted to recreate a family that I had lost. And my primary wound was my abandonment wound. I was too afraid that I wasn't going to find anyone. So I would hold on. And I didn't want to rock the boat because I had already seen everything in my life fully unravel and death was a big part of it. So I would hold on to something even though knowingly or subconsciously that it was toxic. And and to be able to use then those seven years to go into the deepest, most profound healing and grief healing because that was the first time I would finally go through all different kinds of modalities from your traditional talk therapy through somatics through all of the things that you know I grew up listening to from my dad's lineage of the spirituality the the meditations that he would do 2 hours a day that I didn't really give a shit about because <laughs> it wasn't cool at the time but I so deeply yearned it and I so deeply wanted that 
because that was a solace in many ways that was home for me. So it took me then going back into the many different traditions that I was born and raised in to literally go back to India, to go to Bali, to go visit some of the spiritual meccas around the world and to be able to come home to a place of my own divinity and my own sovereignty and also release the traumas that were stuck and whether it was through psychedelics, whether it was through the somatic experiencing, the full embodiment, the actual, you know, and this would come much later, but the second, or I would say even third 3.0, the third awakening would be years later when I actually became a mother. I found love and found a partner and my co-pilot now who's an unbelievable human being. And I would be faced with another shattering of some of the strings that were probably still had some triggers there. And that that was my relationship with rage and anger that literally brought me back to, you know, when my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer and I couldn't control it. Even though he was jogging six miles a day, I'm like, why is this happening? I was a pre-dental student. I'm like, I know better. I've taken all the bio classes and all the things. How dare you diagnose him? Mm-hmm. Because I was this good Filipino Indian girl that, oh, she doesn't get angry. Oh, no. She had a lot of rage that was fully suppressed in her that never saw the light of day. So when it came out, it was actually when I became a mother and I suffered some pretty hardcore postpartum depression. Hmm. It's just such a journey that you're sharing with us and and the vulnerability to which you're sharing it. I just want to honor first. There's something you said, many things you said, but Something in particular that gave me shivers. When you talked about that process of your dad in the hospital saying to your friends, like, bring her to faith, bring her to all these places. And then years later in your own healing process of what you refer to as coming back to your own divinity. And just in like seeing and hearing that journey, like in the invitation of him, the ask, the request for him to, for you to find basically what you found. Oh yeah. Just maybe in a different language or different wording. Yeah, it was, oh gosh, a a different way and a different, he was never really much about, you know, religion per se, but it was always spirituality. And, And he was the biggest spiritual teacher now. As I'm looking back, he always had that reverence for, which is why he wanted us to learn literally and go to all of the different experiences and things because that's literally what he did and he was so interested in. You know, when you're born with somebody who has that much openness for spirituality and not a specific dogma per se, my mom was the one that was Catholic, I think the natural tendency is to resist and reject. I was also a rebellious teenager that didn't really get to play out my rebellious teenage stage. And so when during that time, thinking back, I'm like, oh, wow, he just wanted me so badly to find that, to know that it was going to all work out and be okay. And as you talk about coming to your own divinity is 
Is there a sense that you found it? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. It was finally to be at peace at home with myself after so many years of running, after so many years of the doing, of the achieving, and then finally for everything to just fall and crumble. And even though seemingly (laughs) from the outside, everything looked perfect and great. She had her seven-figure practice. She was barely 30. She did all of these things. She was the talk of the town. She's, you know, but for me, the more I let go of the external success to start having better boundaries with myself to say, nope, and to actually have such clarity in, I actually don't know what's going to happen for the next six months. If any of you need to leave, if any of you need to, and this is me literally letting people in that work for me that I never thought or believed I had that power of leadership. It was coming from a place of like full desperation of, I just don't know where things are at right now. And if you need to leave and find other jobs, go for it. But this was, again, coming from a place of my divinity and owning that finally, this is the time that I need. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but I get that you all have families. And if this is the thing, then I guess I'll have to rebuild whatever this is. And to just allow myself to actually share that vulnerably as a leader who didn't really know what she was really doing, but going through the deepest, darkest place of, again, having to come back to herself and trusting herself and trusting that these decisions are completely solely hers and to protect her own sovereignty, that's when I realized that, oh, okay, my team is like, Nita, go do whatever you need to do. We got this. If you need to stay at our house, stay at our house. If you need to whatever it is, cook you meals. what and, and just everyone just showed up and fully supported. And I'm like, oh, this is what I was scared of. Mm. <laughs> this is what I was scared of to let people in. Mm. So now, and since then, just using vulnerability as this bridge, because we sometimes do not know what other people are going through behind closed doors. And we want to pretend like everything is okay. And I feel like now we're getting to this era of we're not okay. It's not okay. And and that's actually okay if you're not okay. And for, you know, the cultures of, you know, kind of in a diaspora, you're not allowed to even share that because you're then thought of being weak. And yet I've seen so much struggle with mental health and and our emotional health where it then does manifest in many ways in the body. And I'm like, I made that point. I'm like, I am not going to do that, not for myself, nor this next generation that I'm birthing out. And how interesting is that my firstborn was, you know, my son who then taught me (laughs) the full again, reclamation of being able to sit with those really, really dark, heavy emotions of rage and anger, because that was literally the first six months of his life. I think rage and anger simply because instead of me taking care of everyone for the first time, I could not. And I needed to, again, ask for help. And I needed to, again, ask 
the elders in my family, my beautiful mother-in-law who, you know, is from the Ayurvedic traditions who wanted to just baby me and mother me. And I was in full resistance to it. I'm like, nope. We don't do this. We don't do 40 days sitting in. We're, we're American. We don't do any of that. And I had the biggest universal slap on my face because there were things that didn't properly heal. And I had to fully surrender and again, allow and let go. And I think it's the letting go of the desire to control. I think that for so many of us who've had these big T traumas of you know, maybe unexpected death or sudden death or sudden loss, even in friendships, betrayals, somebody leaving you just without cause or without like, that's such a trigger response to then be met with, oh, okay, someone's going to actually take care of you and, and you can't, you're like, you physically are incapable of, of doing anything and taking care of yourself that you have to trust other people that they're going to be, that they have the best intention for you. That place of releasing oneself and their quote unquote ability to self-care, like the performative self-care. It's like, that sort of avoidant attachment style self-care. It's like, I got this. I don't need anyone. And then when you face the fact that you can't do it alone and you have to let people in, it's, oh, wow. I know that from a personal experience too. It's like, that is some tough shit. I remember I was going through my divorce and I fell apart. Like it was my first relationship because my first divorce, I really didn't know if I was going to make it through. Now I've done like five divorces and I'm like, I can do this. No, <laughs> no it's like the tire, but divorce. It's tire, but divorce. Bring it all back. <laughs> Bring it all back. Uh, I've only had one, but big breakups, you know, like that was my first relationship. It was my first love. It was my first breakup. And, and it was like in my late 20s. And I couldn't function. I literally couldn't get off the chair. And I was a therapist. Like I took care of people since, I don't know, since I was a therapist since I was early 20s. So it's like 2021 and didn't let anyone take care of me and didn't trust that anyone could. It was the reality of it. Yep. Yep. And when I couldn't get off the couch, I couldn't feed myself. It was just, I'd never hit a place of depression before like that. And my parents took care of me and I was like, whoa, no, I don't, I don't get taken care of. I don't do this. And to like rewire that experience that it's okay to be taken care of. I resonate with that so much as you speak to that of like, it's painful. Yeah. I was also going to say it's like awkward because you're, <laughs> you know, it is awkward because you're like, I don't even know how to be because this hasn't ever happened. So I don't even know how, how to be. And because I'm not calling the shots or I'm not the one organizing or I'm not the one galvanizing or I'm not the one bringing people together, then then what is my worth? Then mm. what, a, what is my, what am I meant to do? Yeah. And, if, and am I only worthy if I'm contributing in some way instead of just receiving? 
Yeah. Such a brilliant point of going, if I, if those of us who are in the caretaker roles or the, the helpers, the healers, the attendees are attending to other people, it's like, if I'm not doing that, what is my value in the world? What am I worth? And to be on the other side of it, of, of receiving, it really stokes that fire of being, at first at least, of being worthless, of valueless. Oof. Oof. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I have a question for you. Yeah. What the fuck is resilience? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, because we started talking about it and we're talking about it now because like you and I are here able to share about our first tire, our first hurt, our first breakdown, our first dark night of the soul, and maybe even the ones after that. But there's something that's allowing us to be here in our experience of it, I see you as you're sharing, like I see the tears, like, and you're still here with yourself and with us. And there's something that's happened. Oh yeah. I, you know, I think that resilience is not just your ability to bounce back from, you know, tough moments, right? If we, if we take the Latin definition of, of resilience, resilier actually means to bounce back. But if we actually unpack what that really means versus what we were told of, yes, resilience means strength. Yes, in the dictionary, it means, you know, to persevere. But if we really unpack bounce back to what our modern day folks on, you know, these strong memes and these warrior memes out there suggest, well, if I were to take a glass of water and I have the glass of water in one hand and the glass of water is like held together by glass and you're saying, okay, glass is really strong. It's really tough. But if I let that glass go, that glass is going to shatter in a million pieces and it's going to, we're going to have water everywhere versus if I, you know, my kids are two and five and we go to these parties and we have these little, you know, the bouncy balls that like are in their goodie bags and I take their bouncy ball that has bounce. It's made out of probably rubber. And if you feel it, it has a little bit of softness. It has a little bit of give when you touch it it has a little bit of like the agility. So when you let it go, yeah, it's going to bounce, but why? Because it, it has the flexibility to bend. Mm. It won't break, but it can bend and it can be soft and it can be flexible and agile and it doesn't have to be so rigid and strong because guess what? Well, that's just going to crack. You let go of granite, that's also going to crack. And so my definition of resilience is, yes, it, it, it's, a, it's a duality. It's the paradox of can you actually embrace the strength with the softness the ability to break down and build up with all of the cracks, with all of the imperfections, because that's then uniquely your experience. And that is part of our human experience. It's, it's how we rise up again, 
now patched up with our, our beautiful lens and Kintsugi of the world. Mm, I love that. I'm rooting you on and cheerleading with you of your definition because I struggled with that concept of resilience for a long time. And then when I became a therapist, I was like, the definition of like, you just bounce back doesn't make sense to me. Because let's say you go and I always use the image. I don't know if your kids have ever had it, but like those sandbag, like punching bags that you can go punch. And I always think of that as resilience because I'm like, okay, you can go punch the sandbag punching bag and it'll just bounce back. So if we were to imagine that as a human, they must be just fine, right? Because they just stand back up, but we're missing the imprint of the impact, the internal bleeding, the internal process that we might not see from the outside. And just because someone can stand back up, quote unquote, doesn't mean all the pieces are being held together or are adaptable anymore or are in optimal function or aren't disintegrating beneath the surface. Oh, so true. So true. You're fully changed after an experience like that. You know, if we're taking the, you know, the, after my car change of tire experience, you bet I knew exactly what to do the next time. You bet I was a little bit more prepared. You bet that I definitely asked someone to say, okay, how does this really go? Can you actually show me? And I kid you not, the next time I had a flat tire, this was with a girlfriend of mine and it was at night and it was actually on the side of the road in Chicago on Lakeshore Drive, if you've ever been. And we were like, okay, we got this. It may have been a little different if I was going to be by myself, but thank God she was with me. But we changed, you know, we put the spare tire back on. And the thing is, is does it still hurt? Does it still affect us in those ways? Do I still go back to that that first initial encounter of when I was alone at 19 in my car? Yeah, because those are forever imprinted. And that's why as humans, when we encounter another season or another person or another challenge or another circumstance, we already have a certain imprint that is there. I guess it's still up to us if we go back and in the book, I have this concept of, you know, flying forward. And in this framework, you know, the first step is you have this fall. And so the fall could be the changing the tire, getting stuck on the road, the breakup, the divorce, the going through childbirth and, oh my gosh, am I going to have another situation like I did the first time? We have this fall. And so as we've been talking about this entire conversation, yeah, do we then just bounce back and we're fully okay? No, there's wisdom in that first time we fall. There's wisdom because then we are ignited. We either can go back to doing and and responding the same way that we've always responded. That's easy for our nervous system. That is easy, puts us back puts us back into what we normally do, or we do something different that maybe it's a little bit more difficult in the beginning, right? You go through that ignition and maybe you go in through this this rising phase where 
you're kind of like a toddler who's learning how to walk or somebody that's learning how to bike you're or learning how to public speak. Uh, you're not going to be good at it. You're going to suck at it, but you're learning the tools to kind of then go, okay, I'll go from rising to magnifying and then magnifying to actually thriving because now I have different wisdom and different set of tools to help me get through some of these big human hurdles that is actually just meant for me. Mm. So we have falling to igniting to rising to magnifying to thriving. Thriving. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. This show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools for transformation that are created by Omala. Oof, even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever, like an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. They have this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving for. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into a profound insight, and then you can plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. I mean, damn, if that's not both deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live in a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com. Use the discount code DRSCOTT10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. There's another piece around resilience that I thought could be interesting to talk about, which is like in a lot of the literature, it focuses on like not just the part about bouncing back, but bouncing back from a negative experience. And I had this wild encounter as a therapist in my mid-20s in which I was working with a client that she could attend to sadness, she could attend to anger, but the moments we talked about joy, she would dissociate. She couldn't be present with joy. And I was like, okay, so we built in this process of starting to titrate, to to take little sips of joy because joy meant that she would let her guard down and that she would be vulnerable to the next possible hurt, specifically from her mom. And also had a big loss early on and felt like if she had joy, she would fall victim to being sucked into another, unprepared for another tragedy. And I had this revelation that I was like, oh my gosh, resilience is not just about tolerating or bouncing back from negative experience. It's about growing the capacity to be present with what's here, period. That can include experiences of sadness or tragedy, but also just as much as can I be here with a growing capacity to be here with things like joy, pleasure, play, delight. Yeah. And that's your birthright. 
Yeah. But it's so easy for us, especially if we're on the spectrum of mm-hmm. always feeling in the in the suck or always feeling in the something bad's going to happen, you know. So I lean closer to the anxiety. I lean closer to the despair. I lean closer to maybe the hopelessness or the vigilant. I'm always on guard because I don't know when the next thing. And it's almost like a muscle that we have to build. It's, you know, one of the things that I do talk about in the second part of the book is how do we actually build our bounce factor? Like, how do we build the foundation of our bounce factor so that when we are going through big hurdles like you shared with, you know, your client or anyone that's going through a sucky moment that maybe keeps happening, or maybe it's a repeated pattern that keeps happening. And usually this is relationships, but you know, there's four pillars of this foundation. I'm actually, you know, if you guys aren't watching, I'm I'm holding my hand like a, like a square, because I think that it is the foundation where we get to bounce. It becomes our trampoline. It becomes our place to play. But the first pillar of that is being okay with our past, being okay and going back into figuring out the things that we couldn't control and making peace with our upbringing or making peace with our past. And if you don't want to go all the way to your seven years old, six years old, maybe it's, well, what were you told about your emotions as a child? What were you told about you know, having relationships or what, how did you make meaning of money? Like what are all of those threads that now are affecting you in maybe subconsciously different ways? I shared mine. Mine was fear of abandonment. It was fear of abandonment, but I needed to be okay with not ever abandoning myself. So to really reframe that. And so that's just one piece where so often, and even if I'm talking to corporate, it's like, well, let's make peace with what happened last year. What didn't go well last year in the company. It's literally making peace with our past and some of the decisions that got you there. The second pillar of that is to be able to have a have a look at our current environment and what we're exposing ourselves to. Are we actually afraid to suck at something new? Are we afraid to shift things? Are we afraid to change things where we're picking the same kinds of partners because it feels good for our nervous system and because there's that drama that keeps things spicy, but then you know at the end of the day, it's probably not going to amount to anything. So that's that current environment piece. But the third piece that I really wanted to get into with, with you, Dr. Scott, is you know, with this client, and I know that this is a big factor for a lot of people that they can experience one or the other, or they do their best to avoid. This is that emotional capacity to feel and to really expand our edges. And for me, it's, I don't want to sit in the suck. I don't want to sit in the suck. I don't want to sit in the suck. Nope, nope, nope. I will do whatever it takes not to feel those feels. And then you get caught on the highway with a flat tire. <laughs> We'd be good at stand-up, I think. We, yeah, we, we, I would love, because there's, that, there's that trick in stand-up where you always come back to the main... Yeah, 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 exactly. So, hopefully you guys would vote for us. <laughs> vote for us for the competition we're not on, but... We're not whatever. on. <laughs> we're on the AAA comedy tour. <laughs> Sponsored by AAA. <laughs> oh, What's God. the fourth one, by the way? 
Well, the fourth one is your radical self-awareness, mm. your RSA, and that's just going your your RSA, not AAA, RSA. Yeah. You're you're coming back to a place of how do I feel now? How do I feel now that I've had the awareness that I know that I can't control, that I know that I don't like to have joy in my life, mm-hmm. that I know that I don't like to sit in the suck. Now that I know that, how does that feel in my nervous system, in my body? Where is that coming up? And can I pay attention to that? And are there people or circumstances or situations where maybe I'm more heightened, I'm more sensitive to having a full experience or maybe having a trigger outbreak or maybe having a yelling episode because this feels unsafe in my body. That's the integration piece because now you have that radical self-awareness to notice some of the subtleties that were in the past. You're so quick to just bypass. We're so quick to just make an excuse. We're so quick to... But when you have these four pillars, it's hard to unlearn. It's hard to unknow because now you're, you just now have this, this deeper sense of, of awareness and you can now then align to what feels true and start paying more attention to you. Yeah. I mean, what is the outcome of getting to jump on the trampoline? I want to make it clear to people I mean, I know I'm asking a question, I'm answering it slightly before I turn it over to you fully. But like, we know that being able to jump on that trampoline doesn't mean that life is going to be perfect, that it's not going to suck, that suddenly that everything is easy. But what does it mean when we get on that trampoline and we get to be on it for our lives? Yeah, well, you have now this emotional operating tool call it for, you know, what it's worth. You have this tool now to fly forward past obstacles, to fly forward past challenges. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have them. That doesn't mean that, you know, the next fall that you have, it may not be painful. It'll still be painful, but it may not be as painful as the first time you had a flat tire. It may not be as painful or you might not go into those lowest emotions of full despair, or maybe you will, but now you have the tools to not just pay attention, but you can also now integrate. You can also use them to put your hand over your heart, expand yourself in that way to really be able to sit in the sack because what are we all really afraid of? And even if you're afraid of experiencing joy. Clowns. <laughs> the clowns. Oh, I, no, clowns. Was that, wait, was that a figurative <laughs> question or a literal question? <laughs> figurative, but it's okay. Shit. <laughs> we'll delete that later. All right. So okay, what yeah. are we really afraid of? <laughs> well, what, are we, what are we really afraid of? We're literally afraid of potentially feeling our feelings and actually feeling an emotion for what, 60 to 90 seconds. We're afraid of tears. You know, we're afraid of what a high that joy can actually bring, that we're worthy of experiencing the highest highs and the lowest lows because it's through contrast of where we get to appreciate life's biggest gems. And I think when you're on this trampoline, that really is a beauty of life. And I talk about paradox a lot because 
to your point of your client of not experiencing joy, I never thought I could experience joy through those grief times that I had ever, ever. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I I always went back to comedy and watching you know, say, I know he's canceled, but you know, Bill Cosby growing up, it was like one of those things that was just, you know, and then, and then Seinfeld was like a big staple in our household. Why? Because it regulated my nervous system so much so that part of my sucking at something new was literally after my big divorce, my reclamation back to myself in those seven years, I did take improv. I did take stand up twice. I'm not very good at Love it. Love that. <laughs> We're going to go do an improv show together. Oh my God. Wait, and this, this is the improv show. This is the improv show. Oh. I think we're doing really well. <laughs> I mean, I mean, my glasses always Please give one. us five stars. <laughs> please, please take the pities. A pity five star is still a five star. Still a five star. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I will say that is one yeah. of the things I'm, I'm challenging myself to actually perform a five minute stand up set in 2024. Will you call me and leave it on my phone? Oh my gosh. Maybe I'll perform it for you here. I'll come back. Come back. <laughs> to the gently used. And if you want, I'll heckle you. Oh so my god! So you gosh. can just get like used to it. When I did yeah. stand up, I thrived off people heckling me. I don't think I would be okay with it now. Like if I was doing a podcast live and someone was heckling me, I wouldn't know what to do. You would pause. It would be a big pause or something. <laughs> Let's feel. Where like, are we feeling that right now? <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, what's happening under the hood for you? I'd probably just like turn it back in some, some therapeutic manipulative way. Whereas like when I was in my youth and in my prime of doing like, you know, drag queen stand up insult comedy of like going like someone would say something and it was just so quick and so sharp. And... I think I'm I'm a little sad right now how much I've softened. <laughs> that's really good. Yeah. That's really yeah. good. I'm going to be honest about that. Okay. That's really good. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I'll be if, I, if I'm heckled. I think I okay. would smile. I think I would go back to yeah. my previous operating system of just smile and nod. <laughs> smile and nod. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was really great. Or complimenting their heckle. Yeah. (laughs) But this is resilience too of like, how do you stay with your experience as you're being heckled? It's very true. 100%. I mean, part of the building blocks of resilience is your ability to make fun of yourself too, not take yourself so seriously. And that's part of being able to expand and explore your edges right? I think so often we're, again, if we, if we take the metaphor of being so tough, you know, tough as nails, super strong and, you know, tough like granite, where is there room? Where is there edge? Where, where is that edginess? Where is that ability to expand? There's none. You're so rigid versus the bouncing ball versus that 10 cent bouncing ball that you give to your kids at, at a birthday party. It's got a lot of wisdom, that ball. That ball's got a lot of wisdom. Uh, uh, Speaking of wisdom, you know, one of the the elements of resilience, and we've talked about it, but I'm just weaving it in a little bit more, which is like 
there is something about when you're with an experience, when you're able to be with the suck, as you refer to it, or present with something, there's an opportunity to glean meaning from it. It's like what we call wisdom. It's the expansion of, of wisdom. And I think you referred to it as like, uh, in your book, as like somewhat finding magic in the mess. And I have the spicy question for both of us. Ooh, so I'm yes. going to heckle both of us in this moment. All right, go for it. <laughs> Which is like, what is the difference between finding meaning in the mess or gleaning meaning or any of that and toxic positivity? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Right? Yes. 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 I just, yes. I want to heckle us hard mm. on this one. Oh, this is good. So, uh, you know, I'll take the the toxic positivity. I'll take it first. And I talk about the four different personality types that one can be. I mean, there's, you know, there's five too, but I really talk about the top four. And in the first one is, you know, your intense reactor. Like if something doesn't go as planned, or just think about it, you know, for anybody that's listening, what is your primary emotional response when something doesn't go as planned? Or if somebody is not agreeing with your beliefs, or if somebody is challenging your beliefs, like what is that primary response? Well, for somebody who's an intense reactor, their primary response is going to be anger. They're going to blow up. They're going to, I can't believe it. You know, you think, you know, the Sopranos, you think the dad from Billions, <laughs> you know, if, if there's any image that comes up, these are like the, ah. so that's one. Now, the second person is the sensitive receiver, the one where you tell them feedback and they go into the sadness. They go into the victim. They go into, oh man, I can never do anything right. Oh man, everything bad always happens to me. Oh man. And they're sitting in it and their primary emotion is sadness. And then you go to the folks who are the accommodating pleasers. Yeah. And the accommodating pleasers, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much all of us, all, all, all of us, all of us. Who they're like, okay, you know, will you be able to stay an extra 10 hours this weekend? Sure thing, boss. Of course, anything for you. Will you be able to show up an hour early? Absolutely. Tell me more. I'd love, love all of that. And then behind closed doors. Just so we're clear, I only, I only date accommodating pleasers. <laughs> yeah. And you? Who do you date? I am the accommodating pleaser. <laughs> we could date. <laughs> We could take. And so that would result in a primary emotion of, ooh, resentment. Because it's like, what the fuck? Like, ugh, I can't believe it. Because they, they don't know how to voice their feelings. They don't know how to voice taking a stand for what they truly, their truth is. And then we finally get to the toxic positivity warriors. Where? <laughs> the warriors. <laughs> <laughs> Warriors. <laughs> the warriors. Yeah, it's, I, I call them the positivity warriors, but we all know what we're really talking about. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that they bypass and it's very easy to bypass. And because, oh, nope, that could have been worse. Actually, that could have been worse. Actually, no, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Mm. We're going to go for the gold. Nope, that playbook was, I'm going to do better tomorrow. Yeah. Or I'm so grateful this happened. I've learned so much. Now I'm I've enlightened. Learned, now, now I'm done and I'm over it. And I can I'm, help heal the world. 
<laughs> I'm over it. I mean, this is for anybody who has literally had an experience and now they're like, they're ready. They're, they're ready and out in the gate. Mm. Except that just leads to burnout. That primary emotion is, is burnout because how long can you suppress and how long can you be on a high cortisol drive? And when I am sharing, so the difference between that persona and sharing, finding magic in the mess, it's not that we're, we're bypassing through the mess. We're like, okay, we're in the big suck of it right now. I cannot do anything to control it. All I can do is just sit in it, smile, and be okay and almost surrender to the fact that this is where I am. So it's more of a, or, you know, what I want listeners to take kind of a a guidance, a guidepost with is that it's to embrace the now, to embrace the present, that we can actually sit in the papers flying in the air, the the messiness of your house, that nothing's going to be perfect, that the kids are crazy and there's just all of the things are just falling apart. You've got a nanny on the freeway. (laughs) 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 It's all... It all comes back to the freeway. It's all going to be okay. That can we actually laugh at sometimes the shit that befalls on us and to say, okay, this is where I'm at. It sucks. And that's why the title of my book is not, it's not that this sucks right now. It's that sucked. Now what? And it's to acknowledge that, you know, whatever we're going through, okay, that was painful. That was hard. That happened but that we're not going to sit in it forever, that we can allow ourselves the 60 to 90 seconds to actually fully feel or the five days or the 10 days or 30 days if you need to. I have all of you know these kind of plans written out in the book, but to actually give people a mantra because this was, you know, this was also given to me in various different ways through my own journey of, can you actually have an anchor phrase word moment where you can say, okay, that sucked. Now what? I don't care if you use that suck. Now what? But maybe, maybe, maybe that's easy. Maybe to say, all right, I'm having a big moment right now. That sucked. That sucked. That sucked. Now what? I can't control what is not going right. I can only feel it in myself. And it's almost a reminder to be able for us to, to sit in that and then say, okay, well, what is, what is the magic? What is the magic that I can gain from this without the bypass? Yeah. Yeah. Because I love the link you're making is like the wisdom we acquire can only emerge from what we feel Mm -hmm. and to be present with what we feel is at the root of, of all the work that we're doing. And we build the resources and the, and the, whether it's faith-based or friendship-based or anything else, dog-based or pet-based or finding the right environment that lets you be that much more present so that you can be with and then expand or expand wisdom. And wisdom, I just want to say like, wisdom doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. 
Like, I love that you said that earlier. And I just want to repeat it because like you can come back to a memory like you did when you were 19 and it still aches and have the wisdom that emerges from it that says, there's that level, there's that depth of pain and I can still show up for myself and another. All of that is true. That's fucking wisdom. That's the wisdom that nobody can take away. That's yours. That's yours to own. It's yours to have. We just have to be able to embrace it. And so often we're afraid of that wisdom. So often we're so quick to suppress that wisdom because going to feel that wisdom is going to require the the pain, the ache, and the discomfort. Mm, so true. Mm. You know what doesn't suck? Hmm. You. Aww. <laughs> and you know what else doesn't suck? What? Your book, which is so <laughs> great that I want everyone to go get and read. And... <gasps> That book that is That Sucked, Now What? How to Embrace the Joy and Chaos and Find Magic in the Mess. And as a fellow messy human being, as many of us are, yes, I just want to say we can find the magic in us. Oh, gosh. Yes. And the fact that we're messy actually gives us the magic. Actually mm. gives us the magic. You're fucking magic. Ah, so are you. This is so much fun. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for being on the Gently Used Human. And where can people find you? Where can they mm. connect with you? Okay. Well, IG is usually where I live. So that's Meet the Bushin <laughs> on IG and on LinkedIn. And if you want to get the book along with the full incredible resources, that is at thatsuckednowwhat.com. So thatsuckednowwhat.com forward slash shop and grab it there. Go grab it, y'all. Thank you so much, my love. And thank you all for listening and tuning in. And don't forget you messy, gently used humans are fucking magic. So much magic. Thank you for listening to the Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUse.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And show some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today.